I'm your host, Nick Dyson, Scientific Director at the Mass General Cancer Center, and this is episode 47. Today we're talking with Shannon Stott, an Assistant Professor in the Center for Engineering in Medicine at the Mass General Cancer Center, and with Brian Nahed, a neurosurgeon at the Mass General, and they have published a paper just recently, earlier this year, that describes the collaboration that brings together their very diverse backgrounds and interests. And I thought before we got to talk about the paper, um, I was hoping you could both give us a little bit of introduction as to how you got here. So first of all, thank you very much for coming. It's great to have a chance to talk to you both. Right. Shannon, let's start with you. Uh, so, Shannon, I know you're an engineer, and uh, there aren't that many engineers in the Cancer Center. So tell us about your journey and about how you got here. Great. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Um, so as you stated, I'm a mechanical engineer, and I started liking engineering in high school. Um, I've always just enjoyed physics and mathematics, and it was a, a natural evolution to start studying engineering. But I didn't study cancer initially. Yeah. I was looking at things like particle motion in a wave tank and... So are you one of these people who um, looks at a problem and says, oh, I can fix that? <laughs> Indeed, actually, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, and it can be a little frustrating at home because my husband's also an engineer and we both think we can fix it, but oh, in different that, ways. So. And, and your parents must have recognized this. Yes, yeah. yes. So I think my father very early on tried to encourage uh, my engineering traits and promoted interactions that I had with both female engineers that he knew, yeah. as well as opportunities of things that I could explore to kind of delve deep into to that. Yes. And I can see it in my son now as well. So it's, it's kind oh, of fun to see the genetic tree. <laughs> yeah. But um, so in college, I just really enjoyed attacking problems. But more importantly, whenever you were working towards something, you ended with a product. It was something tangible that you could hold. Yes. And for me, that was very rewarding for all of the modeling and math, but to actually have a device or some component that you yeah. could walk away with, it was fun. And, and do you have an instinct for mathematics? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I think that's the language that that I do very well in, more so than French or any other language that I tried to learn. Um, but then in graduate school, I was studying air conditioning and refrigeration. Yeah. And I'm Where did you go for graduate school? So I started off at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, in the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Program. Hmm. And there we were trying to design the best air conditioner for the environment. So there was no regard to cost, designing it, and as much as it was fun. It wasn't something that I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing, but I did know that I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing research. I thought the research environment was incredibly exciting, and then it was really a reckoning of what do I want to focus my energy on. Uh -huh. And that's when I started thinking about the projects that I enjoyed the most and how I could pursue those further. And one of those projects was designing a biochemical warfare suit for DARPA, where we were... That sounds a long way from air conditioning. <laughs> It was, but, but we had to design this garment that would cool off soldiers when they entered the battlefield. And this uh -huh. was after the first Gulf War. And the original suits weighed about 40 pounds. And the suit itself was making the soldiers drop um, as soon as they stepped foot into the yes. desert. So we were trying to see how can we use microfabrication and be really clever in how we were using cooling loops. Specifically, one of the things we looked at, can we just use sweat? as a secondary refrigerant loop and wicking that off of soldiers' bodies. So that's when I realized I really love the designing interface of the human interaction with uh -huh. the technology and then wanting to pursue that further. So 
did you complete your degree then in Illinois? So I got my master's degree there, but they didn't have a bioengineering program at the time. And that's when I just started looking around and Georgia Tech had just started a program that year. It was, I was really excited about the work that they were doing. Hmm. It was a warmer climate. Um, So it was great to move down to Atlanta for five years and then complete my PhD down there, focused on tissue engineering as well as um, biomems. Is your family from down south? No, they're actually from Boston. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. So this is coming home. Indeed, yes. So, yes, yeah. um, all of my siblings and my family, yeah. they're located here. So, uh, Georgia Tech, you said you were focusing on biomems. Yes, yes. yes. And so doing... What, what are biomems? <laughs> so biomems are making components and machinery really small. So think about things that are the size of a dime um, that have complex machinery inside of it, little tiny valves and pumps. But the idea is that when you get down to these really small scale where your, your pipes and your tubing is less than the thickness of a human hair, the physics change in a really interesting and unique way. You can now manipulate particles in um, complex ways that you wouldn't be able to do if, say, that pipe or tubing was larger. And so it's a really interesting theoretical space to explore, but then to also be able to build um, components that allow you to kind of come to a completion of what you can do with that. It's, Mm -hmm. It's been really exciting for me. So you then went from Georgia Tech. Where did you go after that? You came. To- I came here. So while I was down in Atlanta, um, I was focused on cryopreservation and looking at the physics of ice crystal formation and how we could control that in a very confined way and model the physics behind that. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm trying to see the segue. <laughs> <laughs> So so while I was down there, and that involved a lot of imaging, device fabrication, a lot of high-end microscopy, um, but my stepmother was diagnosed with stage 3B cancer. Oh, wow. And so it was a very aggressive form of cancer. She was given the prognosis that it would probably be less than a year for her to survive. Um, and she went on a very extensive chemotherapy regimen. And I just remember as she was going through her yeah. treatment, um, the treatment itself nearly killed her. Yes. And But she kept saying when we were talking, remotely well I'm just gonna get through this because this will help and while I was down there I still remember getting the call and it was the first scan after her treatment ended and the treatment didn't help and in fact the tumor grew an additional Uh two centimeters while she was undergoing this Mm. and so I think it really initiated the idea of I would love to be able to use the skills that I'd been developing to see can we better match a patient with a particular therapeutic so that you don't have to go through something like that and also just give a little more meaning to the work that I was doing. Yes. Now, the story ends well. My stepmother <laughs> is still alive 14 years later. Wow, and that's and doing, amazing. Yes, so they and, found another therapy. Yes, yes. yes. So um, she's doing terrifically, which is great, yeah. but then I'm still very passionate about trying to see how can I integrate yes. the skills that I have with the clinic and with people yes. like Brian who can really advise me yes. and we can work together to do something yes. that can make a difference for patients. Yes. Before we get to talk about Brian's journey, I know that there's a very important next part of the, your scientific journey because you came to Boston and you were working with Mehmet Toner. Yes. And, and tell us what you were doing. Sure. So I knew Mehmet from my 
ice crystallization and freezing stuff work, yeah. as my sister calls it. Um, and so Mehmet is a, a big figure in biopreservation. And so he had offered me a position in his lab to, to freeze more stuff. <laughs> and I had said to him, no, I, I don't want to do that. Um, actually, I'd love to come to your lab, but can I focus um, on something in cancer that's cancer yeah. related? Yeah. And he said, sure, we have this new interest in this new project on trying to see if we can pull out these rare cancer cells from patient blood. It involves some device design, modeling, imaging. Would you be interested in that? Yes. And I said, absolutely. (laughs) So it was terrific. And um, I think it was also helped along or was able to get a fellowship from the American Cancer Society so that it could say, yes, I can do something that's really outside of what my expertise is. I have that security of funding. um, And it's been really exciting since then. And and so what Shannon is modestly not saying here is that (laughs) the CTC devices that you made have been incredibly successful. Yes, it's, it's been really exciting to see the journey. I think Brian has been there um, alongside for the past decade as well to yes. see the evolution of not only the technology, but what we've been able to learn about the patient's tumors, their, the, right. the tumor's evolution, as right. well as bringing that to market now as well. Right. It's been a, a great journey to yes. see. So th- that's a fascinating journey. And, uh, um, and I imagine, Brian, your journey is very different. It is. <laughs> I sit here very impressed by Shannon's. Um, I was uh, born in Buffalo, and uh, my parents uh, were doing training, and my father had moved from there to Los Angeles, where I was raised. Um, and I went to high school, and from an early age, I liked uh, tinkering with things. Mm-hmm. And I found that, um, kind of similar to what Shannon was saying, I just like to make things work. Uh, always using my hands, and I, whether it was opening up things around the house or trying to make things work or yeah. eventually try to repair the things I tried to make work, um, <laughs> it always just sort of interested me, and I gravitated towards that. Yes. Uh, my father was a physician, and so I spent a lot of time volunteering in the hospital, and I just I loved the interaction. I thought it was just this amazing place where people would come in quite naively, you yeah. know, somewhat sick, and they would leave hopefully much better. Um, and as I spent probably about three years volunteering, and I just got to a certain level where you just can no longer do anything more as a high school student. Um, And I lived in Los Angeles. I looked up all the researchers I possibly could at UCLA, and I just had this idea that I'd work in a research lab. And so I literally just called about 50 of them, and nobody returned my call except for one. Um, This amazing, amazing mentor of mine um, at the time, Dave Dave Hobda, who studies traumatic brain injury, and he gave me a summer job there, mm-hmm. and uh, it was to v- develop an enriched environment model and looking yes. at rats and just, yes. you know, by happenstance, it would happen yes. to be the brain and traumatic yes. brain injury, and I was I was blown away. So you were smitten by the topic then? I was, yeah. and I, uh, I, I had never thought of the topic at all, huh. and it was one of these things where, you know, I, I went all in, and, yeah. and um, it landed in, amazingly into an abstract and a presentation, and... I just thought, gosh, that this is just the greatest thing in the world. You could come up with a question, you can come up with an answer, and it always works out. <laughs> and I later learned that doesn't always happen. But um, I was sold. I thought that science was just this amazing yes. uh, ability to, to push beyond yes. um, the limits that you know I was sort right. of kept to. Right. And, but, and, but a research career then could go in many different directions. It could. It, it could. And, and you know, I thought about that, and, and so... Um, I chose to stay at UCLA, and I, he, he, they, and that lab was my mentor, and, and um, it was just this amazing experience that I, I kept throughout those years. Yeah. Um, and I still was flirting between science, and obviously I knew the, the world of medicine through my, my father, 
Um, but it, I didn't really solidify that. And so I took an extra year to uh, focus on um, a, a specific program with children with developmental disabilities where you could also pick a research project, but you would also help co-teach a class. Mm -hmm. And um, there was something about that experience that it was so translational, but it was also just so neat to see. On one hand, I, I liked being in the lab, but I, I just got such satisfaction with the day-to-day -day interaction yes. with, in this case, very young children yes. um, and seeing the impact that you could have with just very small outreach or or, or, um, or or great effect with it. Mm -hmm. And the culmination of that was just to apply it to medical school. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I, it was one of the best decisions I made. Yes, yes. Did you know you wanted to go into surgery when you started the medical um, I, You know, I think because I was a tinkerer, yes, I probably had a suspicion, but um, very much so my, my dad's been this just amazing role model in terms of the mm -hmm. way, and he's a pulmonologist. Uh, so it's it, you know it's not exactly surgery, but it is procedural based, and so I, I thought there was this um, link. But I, I went into med school wide open, and I tried everything, and yeah. I tried to put the hat on from every specialty. And um, it wasn't until my third year that I started rotating that I kept coming back to surgery, and um, specifically neurosurgery. And I think one of the things I've always loved about uh, neuro, but specifically neurosurgery is the fact that so little is known and there's just so much of what yes. makes a human being a human being, what gives you the ability to do certain things and not, and then also just the fact that the surgery is so technically challenging and yet the, the risk-benefit ratio is so high and yes. I just I gravitated towards that. Yes. Um, but knowing that it's a seven-year residency, I, I spent an extra year to make sure that in fact that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, and one what my, did you do to make sure? I, I spent another year in the lab. Um, huh. uh, I was lucky enough that Doris Duke gave us a fellowship, and I was able to look at, at that time now, the genetics of aneurysms. And my two mentors at the time, one was a neurosurgeon, Rockinell, and the other was a, a PhD, yes. a, a true scientist and amazing geneticist, Rick Lifton. And, and just to see the interplay of their lab, as well as the interactions between them, um, again, it was just I just felt like I was this lucky person who just happened to be yes. in the right position at the right time. Yes. Um, how and it how was, great to find the thing that you love doing. It was yeah, and it, it you know I think life is all about being in the right place at the right time and just being somewhat lucky. And and I I, I view all of these things as sort of just lucky happenstances. <laughs> um, and so I devoted a year to it. I confirmed that I loved. Uh, neurosurgery. I just thought that surgeries were amazing. Mm. I thought the impact you could have on somebody was so dramatic and, and um, just really, really cool to be a part of. Yes. Um, and then I found the science part, helping to answer all the unknowns, or at least trying to answer the unknowns that, you know, within neurosurgery, there's so many yes. issues and, and we only know a little about a little. And it, it felt like the two had to go together for me to make it right. worth it. I saw you went and did a uh, master's in epidemiology. I did. I did. How I, I, how did that fit into that so, plan? So after, <laughs> um, after uh, so for medical school, I applied to residency, and I was lucky to come to um, Mass General, and you know it was this amazing experience. And and um, before I did the epidemiology, you know you get two years to work in research during those seven years. And that's where I first met Dan Haber, um, Shyamalan Mazwaran, and, and uh, Mehmet Toner. And again, this very lucky position to do all the amazing stuff that Shannon and, yes. and the group had done with circulating tumor cells and apply it to brain tumors. And it was really those two years that, again, re reaffirmed my belief that 
I definitely wanted to have a link to both. Yes. And as hard as it is to sort of have a hand in either field, um, try to marrying them is, is yes. it, it just um, felt like it would be one of the coolest things to do. Yes. And you know, once I finished residency, um, I, I, I was awarded a grant, and as part of it, it was to experience what it was like to get um, epidemiology experience. Uh, and it was one of those things where I, I was very weak at and probably still am, but it was a chance to learn at it. And, yeah. and the Harvard School is just amazing. So yes. Yes. Um, I did it during my last year of, of yeah. graduating, my first year of being an attending. Yeah, I was struck by the contrast between surgery being a very individual patient-by-patient -patient, uh, operation and then epidemiology being this population approach of uh, you know, or a population view they seem as far apart it is but in uh, in some ways they're kind of um, very tied because mm. you know you're right I, I can spend many hours um, operating on somebody's brain tumor and you feel very sort of um, connected to that one human being and that family yes. to get them through this yes. on the other hand you sort of realize that you're you know your fight your, at least your surgical fight to take as much of the tumor out can only get so far and you then sort of look at the bigger population. And this is why, you know, working with Shannon has been amazing, is yeah. is taking everything you do for one person, then trying to multiply it to right. Right. the entire population, and hopefully trying right. to find the answer. I mean, it, it, it feels like it's the only way to, to make things better. So uh, we've danced around this. How did you two end up working together? What was it that brought you? <laughs> well, at Shannon. I, I could say back in the early days of the Circulating Tumor Cell Project, and Nick, as you had referenced, it's, it's a big ongoing effort right now at the Cancer Center. Um, what I find a little interesting is that the original space that compromised the entire effort is now my current lab space. So there were just three benches where everyone worked at the Cancer Center and the CTC project. And I remember we were all working there one day, developing the technology, and someone whispered, there's this neurosurgeon coming in today. He wants to try to find CTCs from the brain. And so we all thought that that was both interesting um, because we, you know, hadn't really thought about no. doing CTCs for any gliomas, but also a bit audacious because the idea of these circulating tumor cells crossing the blood-brain barrier, and we'd at the time been focusing on all epithelial-based tumors. Right. And so so I remember the first day that Brian came in because we were all curious about kind of who... <laughs> <laughs> what a neurosurgeon looks like. <laughs> yes. You know, who, who he was and kind of what his perspective was yeah. on the science. But it was also exciting. exciting. I think, you know, we're both drawn to those high-risk projects, things that are really challenging, yeah. more unknown, but if you can accomplish them, could have really great impact. And so that day was when I first met Brian, and then it was really great seeing that project unfold as we were learning more about the biology of these cells, that they mm -hmm. were present. How do you affirm their presence? Because right. the whole field was doubting their existence. Yes. And so that was a about 10 years ago, yeah. I think, at yeah. this point. So we were both postdocs working on our individual ah, projects, yeah. but then got to know each other through yes. the research. Yes. Yeah, and I, I, I clearly remember, you know, when I, um, during your residency, you're allowed to meet any, uh, or, or essentially try to uh, hook up with anybody who can do research during those two years to help you through yeah. this, that time. And I, again, had done the same thing I did when I was in high school, quite naively, just called a bunch of people who I thought were amazing. And Dan Haber was, I just saw that name, and mm -hmm. uh, he was so, so generous. I met with him, and I pitched this idea. And, yes. and um, again, as Shannon said, it was super high risk, but the yes. reward was 
was so obvious yeah. and it felt like if this was ever going to work it was going to work with this right. group and um and so i i it's funny i had the exact opposite experience i remember coming in and just blown away that i was um you know the only neurosurgeon in the group and these were just the highest level engineers and scientists i'd ever ever even read about but now meeting mm -hmm. and i remember meeting shannon and people would whisper and say she knows exactly what's going on she helped to help the device <laughs> And, and she can answer any question. And I, I, that was like the, the first thing that somebody had mentioned about Shannon. And sure enough, every time I had a problem or a question on that early stage, and there were a lot of problems and questions, um, Shannon was always there. And, yes. and you know, it, it was one of these things where we were we were sort of writing a, a new chapter and, and right. in an area that had never been defined. And, and Shannon's right. I think everyone who I initially pitched the idea to thought it was crazy uh -huh. that these would exist in the blood. Um, but to Daniel's credit, he didn't. To Shannon's credit, she didn't. And yes. to everyone in the lab, I mean, yeah. Shama, Mehmet, everyone right. was so supportive. Right. Um, it almost felt the opposite of crazy. It felt like, why is, why are we the only ones that know the secret? Um, and then, you know, after losing a lot of hair over this, it, it, <laughs> it eventually kind of worked. <laughs> Brian's alluding to the fact that he has no hair. <laughs> <laughs> or less hair. <laughs> It, were, it was very successful. I know you've published the description of CTCs from uh, gliomas uh, that you've isolated from the blood. And and uh, so the project was successful. It, we were lucky, yeah. yes. We, yes. Um, we, 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 found, we were the first to find them. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't just finding them. It was the idea of being able to identify them, but then also do something with it. And I think that's ultimately what the yes. goal of all this is, is yes. not just to prove it's there, although that in and of itself is super interesting. It's more what can we do and how can we right. use this to help um, help patients, but also help beat this disease. And, and it's not me. It, it was literally this group that yes. I just happened to drop into. Yes. Um, and the, the culmination of all that work. I mean, the technology alone is something that I could have never done. And, you right. know, Shannon and everybody who works in that lab made that happen. Right. So it seems very powerful to be able to isolate the circulating tumor cells from these uh, glioma patients. But the paper that you've just published that you um, describes an extension of that technology, it says uh, it's going after vesicles, right? Okay. Extracellular vesicles that Shannon was telling me we should call exosomes. Um, so uh, where did that transition come in? Why did you decide that the CTCs, the circulating tumor cells, weren't enough, that you needed to go one step beyond that? Well, you know, um, I have to give Shannon a lot of that credit. Uh, I, I'm obviously biased in the first, my first exposure and frankly only exposure to this field was through uh, the lab and the and CTCs, and um, I still live and die by them and think they're the most amazing things in the world, but they're rare. Yes. They're hard to get, and on top of it, there's a whole, well, you know, it's like when you go to try to get one thing, but all of a sudden you, you're missing all the other things and seeing the forest for the trees. I think it's not so much mutually exclusive, but rather mm -hmm. they, it's, it's layers upon layers. Yes. And particularly with gliomas that... Um, we, we now know that there's something in the blood. We now know there's something we can capture. Yeah. But then to be able to put that in the context of all the great work that Shannon and others have done with exosomes, circulating DNA, circulating RNA, yes. it's just more complex than just one thing. Yes. And I think if you try to piece that all together, that's what we believe and that's why our partnership we think is so strong is that it's not just one question. It's right. not even one answer. It's not even one modality. It's yes. let's just look at everything in the, in the blood. Yes. So yes. you eventually won't need somebody like me to open up your head. 
as weird as that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> the, the power of the collaboration, though, is that it's coming from someone who does perform those operations and does know what the clinical issues are, combined with a scientist who really knows how to build technologies. And that's the power of the team, I think. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I view... Uh, us is stronger for being together. I, I think yeah. Shannon's clearly the stronger of the two, but <laughs> it, it's one of those things where I, I think it's a team-based approach, and you're only as strong as uh, everyone around you. And frankly, uh, I could have never done this alone, and, and yeah. um, I can't think of anybody who I'd rather do this with than Shannon. Yeah. Well, and likewise, I couldn't have done it alone. I think early on when I joined the Cancer Center, I would pitch some different technology ideas to Daniel Haber, and he's like, that, that would be really cool, Shannon, if you built that. And you may get a science or nature paper if you built that. And that's all probably you would get. It wouldn't impact patient lives. And so let's think about that technology and what that actually is bringing yes. to bear and see how can we actually manipulate and, and refocus yes. your vision. And, and that's what I think I've been able to continue with Brian. We can talk through these are things I can pull out. This is ways I can manipulate it. These are the fluids we can work with. And then Brian beautifully will then say, well, this is a problem I have in the clinic, or this is something that would be really beneficial for mm -hmm. me to know before I go into the operating room. And then we can just have this great partnership where we can go back and forth. The technology gets better that way. It's yes. more directed. And then I think we can have greater impact yes. and benefit the patients. Let's take a break there. Uh, you've given us this wonderful introduction to your collaboration and, and we'll take a break and we'll come back with the next segment, the next podcast, where we'll go through the paper in detail and you can explain what it was that you were trying to do. Thank you. Sure, thanks. Join me for episode 48, where I'll continue this conversation with Shannon and Brian to learn more about a paper they published in Nature Communications in January earlier this year, 2018. Shannon and her colleagues described a new technique using microfluidics and engineered nanosurfaces to capture exosomes released by gliomas, the most common and aggressive form of brain cancer.